0: Here we are. Hey, Jay, how you doing, man?
1: Barley, what's going on, brother? I hope you're well during this COVID-19 quarantine catastrophe that's unraveling around us.
0: Yes, I'm. I'm doing all right. I I I do miss seeing people, and I it's it's tough. It's tough. I, I I I can't lie. So, Jay, I always like to start off. Where are you from? I'm from Dallas, Texas, originally. Born and raised. Born and raised in Dallas,
1: you know, that uh, I've known you for uh, almost a decade now. And I think one of the things that uh, kind of connected us was our Texan bond.
0: Yes, yes. The, the Texan. There's, the Texans seem to find each other. Yeah. Uh, so you are, because I did a little bit of research, you are the, the youngest in your family? I was the uh, <laughs>
1: There is a yeah. There is a 17-year age difference between me and my eldest. Thirteen years between me and my middle brother. My dad was fifty when I was born. My mom was in her, I think, uh, her mid 40s
0: Wow. So you're you're like the baby baby in the family.
1: Well, it's you know it's interesting you talk about like you know how do you not kill yourself? And one of the things that has taken me a long time to, and I still struggle with this even today, even after years of therapy and sobriety and stuff. But there's sort of this guilt that I've always carried with me just for the mere fact of being born like even though i had no control over this i had no control over my own existence in this in this world i still all have always carried this guilt with me about you know these people were a family they had a life my eldest brother was about to go to college my middle brother was going to get there shortly after my uh you know my parents were on the on the cusp of retirement you know they they had a good living they had they had completed a completed family essentially, and then I I came along out of nowhere, and I've always felt like I ruined their lives. I ruined their family by being born, even though I have no evidence and necessarily have any evidence to for that. I never don't necessarily have to, uh, any proof to that. I never once. Uh, I don't think there's ever a time I can identify that my parents. Uh, I may feel like. They never like I may I may hear the feeling that like they didn't love me or they had me out of obligation and they raised me out of obligation, but I don't believe that they ever thought that. If that makes sense, I don't think that they ever thought, "Oh, we're keeping this child because we have to." I think they wanted to try and they wanted to do that, and so I don't think they've ever viewed it as this child has ruined our family the way i viewed it as I do in their family just by existing. And that was you know that co- that caused a lot of. Um, depression in me over the years is just that sort of guilt and I guess semblance of original sin that I carried just by existing when I had nothing to do with that.
0: It's not totally your fault. I mean, I I think it was supposed to happen. You were supposed to be here and, you know, you're kind of like, you know, Jesus in a sense. (laughs) Uh,
1: I don't know about all that, but <laughs> I don't. Th- I don't think. I don't think the. Gu- I don't think the guy at the at the inn in Bethlehem. I don't think the guy in the manger in the in the barn in Bethlehem said to Mary, eh, "You know, you might want to abort it. You <laughs> might want to consider aborting it because that's what my mom's doctor told her. She said, uh, he said, you know, you're pretty old, and there could be a lot of birth defects and complications of pregnancy. You may want to consider terminating it." She said.
0: He said, no, no. And they're like, no, we we need Jay. We need Jay. (laughs) So, so you, uh, okay. So you grew up in, how long did you stay in Dallas? When did you decide to make that jump to LA? I moved out of Dallas for the first time in my life. Uh, a little over 10 years
1: ago, I was, uh, 24, 25 at the time. And I'd spent my entire life in Dallas, Texas, born and raised, went to college there. Um, pretty much lived at my parents lived with if I didn't live with my parents, I had like daily interactions with them. Um, you know, my, my, I went to college at a, at Southern Methodist university. My dad was a professor there. So I would usually see him at the school if I didn't see him at home. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I was very, I grew up very sheltered in that respect.
0: And and you're very close with your parents.
1: My dad and I, my dad passed away two years ago. Uh, we, um you know we definitely did get closer towards the end um when i was able to let go a lot of my my anger and resentment uh we did we did get closer and i was calling him you know like almost every day cracking jokes talking about what was in the news or what happened on the latest episode of Curb your enthusiasm uh my i i feel like there's a certain thing i get to and I, it makes me not want to have kids. It makes me not want to be a father because I feel like I didn't appreciate my dad until it was too late, and I'm afraid of going through that because it just seems like such a thankless job to be a father. I'm like, why do I want to give birth to this kid who's going to hate his own existence until until he finally enjoys it, and then I'm dead, and then it's like I don't even get to I don't even get to experiencing appreciating me. But um, so we weren't necessarily close for most of my life we fought a lot but I'm now able to recognize that his influence in my life is huge for what I do now in my career and who my character is as a person and I find out like a lot of things about a lot of traits that my dad had that I must have just observed growing up or subconsciously picked up that are part of my character now in terms of like loyalty and honesty and generosity and that kind of
0: thing. Didn't you used to watch shows with your dad? You guys were into sitcoms and, and things that like
1: was, that. Yeah, that was his thing. You know, he loved he loved watching Jeopardy. He loved watching sitcoms. So every day I'd come home from school, he would make me a salad. We'd watch Jeopardy and then we would watch whatever the sitcoms were that night. And uh, then we would watch the, you know, uh, there are multiple channels showing sitcoms, so we would watch the live broadcast, and then we would watch the tapes of what the sitcoms we'd taped the night before that were on the other channel we weren't watching. And he loved predicting the next joke or the next line in the sitcom, and he'd say, I should have been a script writer. And, uh, that, and I, I, I guess I subconsciously got it in my head that I needed to get into sitcoms uh, because it gave him such joy in his life. It gave him such pleasure, such, such escape in and and even though he complained about every sitcom he ever watched, like if you ask him for any review on any show that he watched, he'd say, oh, this show is going from bad to worse. That was his <laughs> review for every show he watched. He he watched every sitcom that was on the air, no matter how long it was on. And and I, I it just made such an impression on me. And when I was growing up, the only sitcom, or the majority of sitcoms were like, ones that stand-up comedians had it was like ellen home improvement seinfeld mad about you cosby show so i was like well in order to get into sitcoms i have to be a stand-up comedian that's just the only way and that's so i got it in my head at a very early age that i was gonna become a stand-up comedian to to get my own sitcom one day
0: so how old were you when you went on stage and did uh stand-up comedy well how old were you
1: uh so i i i I think it was, there's a couple of times that I don't count, but I'd say like prof- as, as a person trying to be a professional comedian for the very first time, uh, I was 18 years old, but I had done before that. Uh, I was, a, i was just finishing my freshman year of college when I started doing stand up, but I did the freshman talent show at school doing, doing up. I wasn't that good. Uh, and then, uh, before that, like I did my eighth grade talent show using a bunch of jokes that I saw from a cruise ship comedian uh, on a cruise to Alaska that my family went on that year. But then um, in 2009 or 2010, when I was packing up all my stuff to move to Los Angeles, I discovered a VHS of me doing stand up at at the age of like ten, like I was in like in like the fourth or fifth grade, and. I had the thickest Texan accent on this tape. It's ridiculous. It's like, <laughs> so I went to a grocery store the other day. My cousin came with me. And my, I remember my dad and I were watching this thing. He's like, I don't remember you having this thick of an accent growing up. I, was like, I don't remember that either.
0: <laughs> you should do that. That could be a great bit. I I'm, <laughs> That was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a bunch of
1: like, so I, like, if I recall correctly, it was like a bunch of, like, word wordplay, fine-fieldy and stuff. Like, like my cousin came from India, and she <laughs> said, the phones are engaged, and I know phones could get married. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so w- what religion did you grow up with?
1: So my parents were Hindus, and uh, I went to... They would go to the Hindu temple. My mom was really involved in the Hindu temple. My dad was more, he was religious in a sense of like Hinduism was the religion he subscribed to, but he was more, I'd say he was more spiritual than he was religious. Like he meditated every morning and every evening. Um, my mom was very much into her religion and like the Sunday schools they sent me to were all sort of Hindu based, but there's a little sort of aberration in there. Uh, when I was 10 years old, my dad told me that his side of the family uh, had Jewish ancestry in them. They were part Jewish, because during the Spanish Inquisition in 1492, when a bunch of Jewish people were exiled from Spain, a lot of them went to India and settled down and co-mingled with the locals. And, uh, and so that, he had a line of ancestry from from that group of people. And I, so I, but he was like, it's a big family secret because Jewish people were not well respected in India. So your mom has no idea that my family has this lineage and it's a family secret that we've kind of had to hide for, you know, for generations. And, um, and we've even tried to like cleanse it out of our family tree. So like, you know, you can't, to, to find the closest Jewish relative, you have to go back like at least a hundred or something, a hundred years or so. Like he have this whole explanation for us. And I didn't find out until I was 25 years old that none of that was true. It was just something he made up and he was messing with me. And it was like a practical joke that he forgot to tell me was a practical joke. And so like I went on a birthright trip in 2009 to get in touch <laughs> with my Jewish roots. Did
0: <laughs> you start wearing a gamaka or anything?
1: I, I would go to like, um, when I was in college, I would go to like the Hillel meetings and I would go to, there was a, a, a reform synagogue by our school. So I would go there to Shabbat services every Friday night and I put on a little yarmulke <laughs> and I, I'd chant and bow and all that. and, and I, I'm pretty sure people were looking at me weird, like, who's this Indian kid in the synagogue? But, <laughs> um, and then the other, the other thing that was kind of funny is like, so my mom doesn't know any of this is going on. And my mom was on this interfaith council at the time as the, as the sort of Hindu representative from the, from the Dallas Hindu temple. And so she's meeting, you know, all the rabbis and stuff. And, and they'll be like, wait, you're, your name Mandium, because there's a Mandium that comes to our temple. Are you guys related? How are you the Hindu rep? As this guy's coming to our services every Friday. And I, I remember, uh, so the um the, the interface council had paid for a trip for all these uh women to go to israel one year uh and that was the same year i was supposed to go to israel on birthright and so i was like my my mom knew i was going to israel on this birthright trip and she was supposed to go as part of this interface trip and so she thought that that was she didn't question my going to israel because she's like oh no that's just what jewish people do they send people from other cultures to israel to go learn about their culture i'm doing it she's doing it
0: God, that is hilarious so so you went on this trip right
1: i went on birthright i went on my best friend schneider and i went on our, our birthright trip together and i i i really i um I, I was a year out of college i think i was like 24 and uh they put us on a trip with a bunch of seniors from the university of Miami. And uh our birthright trip was known as like the party trip. I was the least partying person there. I was they were, all the kids on the trip would like stay up till like three, four in the morning drinking, hooking up and partying. And I was I was in bed by ten because I actually really enjoyed learning the history of the culture and the country and all that. And I took it really seriously and I do- I I documented everything. I they flip these little flip video cameras had just come out at the time, so I took one with me to document all the lectures and the trip, and because I wanted to, I just wanted to, to know about it. And one girl on the trip was like, why do you video record everything? Are you making some sort of secret terrorist video? And I said, am I making a terrorist video for all the public information from these museums that we're getting? I'm sorry, if, you're, if your terrorist organization can't afford to Google, I don't think you're terrorizing anybody. It was, it was a fascinating trip it was, it was like really cool to learn the, the history and, and all that
0: and then you found out that the, it was it was all a made up
1: I found out it was all made up and my dad's excuse was that I went to school with a lot of Jewish girls and that Jewish girls only like to date Jewish boys so he said that he was just trying to get me a date in high school but I was like well then why wouldn't you just tell me to say I'm Jewish, he said, you're not that good of an actor. You had to believe it.
0: Oh, man. You got method acted on, on that.
1: I did. <laughs> my dad. So that's the other thing. My dad taught me how to
0: method act. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when you were leaving Dallas to come to Los Angeles, have you been to Los Angeles? Did you know what you're walking into? Or you just moved here first time?
1: I was I like, you know, my, my middle brother uh, lived in Los Angeles at that time. He left oh. uh, it, when I was in 10. He, moved, he left Dallas when I was 10, moved to Los Angeles. So, you know, he'd already been there for over 20 years. And my uh, eldest brother went to graduate school at USC. And then he, at that time, was settled in San Diego and had two kids. So part of moving to Los Angeles was, yes, it was a career. But I also did want to be closer to my brothers and my, my niece and my nephew. And I wanted to like be a part of their lives the way my brothers were a part of my life. So, uh, you know, I, my brothers, would come for my birthday parties. They would come take me t- for treating, you know, and, and I wanted to do that. I wanted to be able to do that with my niece and my nephew. So uh, that was the other driving factor for coming out to, uh, to Los Angeles instead of going to New York.
0: And you're, and at that time, your parents stayed in, in Dallas.
1: My My dad was semi-retired. My mom had retired. And they were doing the thing where they had decided that they wanted to moved back to India so they had a house in Dallas they bought a house they bought my mom's childhood house in India oh, cool. and so they were doing uh, six months in India three months in Dallas three months in San Diego with the grandkids and they did that for a few years and then they just realized that they'd been out of India they have like been in America for way too long to do six months in India like that they just couldn't do it anymore they were like it's too polluted it's too smoggy the culture has changed we don't like it. We don't, there's, uh, you know, we, it's just, they 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 were too Americanized. They couldn't make that adjustment to go back there. So after a few years, they sold their house in India. And then we're just doing, you know, like six months in Dallas, six months in, in San Diego.
0: Oh, that's nice. You and your family are very, very close. And everybody, everybody likes each other.
1: I don't know if they like each other, but we, we, we tolerate each other. I'll put it that way. <laughs>
0: We're civil. So your mom is living with you right now, right? My mom is living with
1: me right now, but that uh, that actually is uh, going to change probably in the next month or so. It looks like she wants to go, uh, kind of spend her twilight years closer to her grandkids. So she's going to move to San Diego soon It'd be because the, the the grandkids are at that age where like you know they're just a couple years away from college. So I think she and she she's got that sort of like. Gloomy syndrome of like, I'm gonna die any day now. So I think she wants to, like, make, you know, get get those last few years in with the kids at home while they're still at home.
0: That, well, that's good, but it's so amazing. You, your mom moved in with you and live, live with you. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty, that's cool. That's great. That's fun, right? You liked it? <laughs> no, that, it, it, I, when she moved in with me
1: because it was, um, she I she I just realized after my dad passed away she emotionally was not able to be by herself mm-hmm. and then she was getting a little she's getting some physical ailments here and there like she uh she she wasn't able to walk as quickly anymore she had some problems with her arms and I said you know well, my brothers and I are sitting there going like well we all can't just keep rotating in and out because you know we all have our our lives and our jobs and stuff out here and I was working at that time pretty regularly as a comedian on the road. And so I thought, okay, well let's just let's move to Los Angeles. Since I'm in town during the week, I will I will take care of her during the week. Then I will, you know, book my road flight to fly out of San Diego. I'll just drive her to San Diego on the weekend or fly and then out of San Diego. We'll do that thing. And so that was like the sort of plan going into it. And then I got a, uh, I got a job like the week that she moved here, that was going to keep me in Los Angeles for most of the week, and then I would still go on the road on the weekends. So then it was this sort of thing was like, oh, well, now I'm not equipped to really take care of her anymore because I'm never at home.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: And 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 now I'm always at home because I have no job
0: to do. So oh, okay, so you're saying right now you're unemployed.
1: Yes, I am unemployed right now. So if anyone's listening, I am available to work.
0: <laughs> yeah, hire him. Explain your relationship with the Hindu religion. I don't know anything about it. Explain it to the listeners.
1: Okay, I I do not identify as a Hindu. Yeah. Uh, you know, my parents tried to raise me one, as one, and I always say it didn't take. And it ha- it's not even really the, the Jewish thing is not really a factor in that. I just don't believe in any religion. I don't think that any religion can have it a hundred percent right i think there's too much uncertainty in this universe to have absolute certainty in any one thing Mm -hmm. and i just don't believe that any religion has gotten it right Uh, i believe that most religions are man-made if not all of them are man-made you don't how do you know what to believe and i believe in i believe in morality i believe in spirituality like i believe you can have morality um just by sort of like thinking well i wouldn't want someone to do that to me so i'm not going to do that to them I think you can have that as a moral guy. And spirituality, like I meditate, and so I think you can have a sort of connection with being and constant questioning of existence and then see that existential stuff uh, without having to have a religion. Mm-hmm. But I also see just the way religion manipulates and divides us, and I just don't... I'm so disgusted by it, that I don't want anything to do with it. So I do believe that hinduism the way i understand it Mm -hmm. uh has a lot of i guess positive things to offer but it's not the religion i subscribe to you know like they're one of the religions that say uh, our our scriptures our holy books they're not literal they're all supposed to be like metaphors and 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 so figurative stories and stuff to teach a lesson but it's not you're not supposed to take this literally which i think like a lot of other religions don't do they encourage you to take their text literally so that's a positive for them um i think there's some things that are like you know not i don't necessarily know if i believe in reincarnation but i will say that reincarnation sounds logical to me it sounds like it's possible like it is something that could happen and this concept of karma of you know instead of like a heaven and hell system but you know you get reincarnated paying for sins from a previous life or you get reincarnated being rewarded for your positive deeds in pre- previous life i mean it sounds logical it makes sense so i accept it as a as a definite you know possibility in the universe
0: i totally understand especially with religion uh jeremy and i were when he was on the podcast jeremy Scipio, uh we were talking about how every religion has merch you know, they have like, you got the sign up. It's like, you know, it's like they got their merchandise, you know, and their website and and they're always waiting. You're always waiting for the, the point, you know, where like, OK, and you can buy this for da, 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 whatever price, you know, and and like sometimes religion feels like an infomercial.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, I know the Hindus, uh, they have merch, they have idols, they have, they have a lot of gods, a lot of idols, it's plenty of money to be made for as many gods as they have. But then the other thing that I was, call, I was always sort of preached, uh, or taught about Hinduism is that, uh, the sort of like the idols themselves are meaningless. They're all symbolic. So therefore, if you don't have an idol, it doesn't mean that you cannot pray to
0: whatever God
1: you're trying to pray to.
0: So you wake up, you have your meditation, do you pray, or do you just meditate
1: uh first thing i I meditate in the morning this is I wake up, I do twenty minutes transcendental meditation, and uh, then I sort of boot up i don't i, I do um I do like one little prayer I'd say before I go to bed
0: and you write a lot i i I think that writing is a very it's It's amazing, it can be really healing it, it, it to me it's a practice sitting down and writing, you know free writing or just writing is to me like a meditation like you're making a point about something, and I, I know you I know you write a lot,
1: yeah, and I think free up is like a great way that I question my existentialism mm-hmm. uh, or question existentialism because when I try to do that through narrative writing, it just doesn't work for me like i you know i I tried doing a, I tried working in a sketch group once and there was one sort of existential idea that I had that I wanted to explore through a sketch, which was this, uh, it was a focus group for life after like they took like five people who died and they put them in a focus group and they were like, okay, so what is it you didn't like about life? And the things they complain about are like stupid things. It's like one person's like, ah, you know, I didn't like that, uh, Keeping up with the Kardashians season two was only 21 episodes instead of 25 episodes. I hated sitting in traffic, you know, like I wish, I wish there was better music when I was, when I was stuck in my car during traffic. It was all like stupid little menial things that don't really have an impact. And the, finally the moderator was like, what about like war? You guys not like war? And they're like, Oh, you know, war never really bothered us. And and the guys in my sketch group were like, we don't get this and I was like "Mm -hmm, okay maybe this isn't the the medium for this idea and and so I find stand-up to be very sort of um pure in that sense of like I can just get my thoughts out about any subject and just as long as I get it out in joke form I can really explore myself and my thoughts on the universe and and existence through stand-up more so than I can in like narrative writing
0: and don't you feel that I I feel like more of the stand-up comedians that are coming up now, I feel like they're more storytellers than, like, they're not like, you know, uh, like Rodney Dangerfield, like, boom, joke, 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 where I feel like we're in a, a time in, in comedy where it's very lengthy, like, narrative, and then there's this, then there's this little, you know, punchline here and there, but it, sometimes I feel like they're just funny stories that kind of sometimes can wander
1: there there are some of those and there are some people who tell stories very you know in a in a very set up punch way like uh, I I've taken you, see, you to see Christopher Titus with me before haven't right, I Right yeah
0: yeah yeah he's great
1: and, and 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 he's a storyteller guy but what I really like about him is he is, is like his stories move because they all have hard jokes in them like every fact he says in his story comes dove-ended with a punchline. And so, like, it's a long story, but it's got, it feels like he's just, it's really just a a string of, it's just one-liners, like Rodney Dangerfield one-liners that are just strung together in a narrative fashion. So there there are people who can, who have figured out how to do storytelling with punches. And I I think when I tell stories, I try to kind of model myself after uh, that Christopher Titus way of doing it because I think it's just, it's so fascinating, phenomenal to do that you can, you can have an audience because I, I, I love getting an audience invested in you Yeah, and I love getting that, that sort of juxtaposition of a, of a moment of silence when they're with you and they're so invested in you and your story and what you have to say that you, you have their complete attention. And I love knowing that I have their attention and that I can just hit them with the laugh that they don't even see coming. And I think that's a, that's a beautiful move. And I think only certain, I think only certain styles of stand up are really capable of doing that and it wasn't until i figured that out through storytelling that i realized kind of what andy kaufman was doing because i i like i would think andy kaufman was funny but i never understood why he liked getting an audience angry at him and then now i understand it's not he likes getting them angry he likes the juxtapositions of emotions because he likes getting them angry and then hitting hitting them with a laugh right afterwards because the laugh can actually be harder after they've gone through some some, uh, sort of like heart palpitating emotion like i there's one story i do on stage uh where i talk about uh, a gig i had to do for a saudi prince and there's a moment where i get the audience like really silent because they are scared that something bad is about to happen to me and when i hit him with the laugh the laugh i get is so big because i've just juxtaposed that fear with laugh and it's like it's not a, it's like a release of their tension and the panic that they just had in a, a moment before and I think that's kind of like what Andy Kaufman enjoyed was getting that, getting them riled up, and then releasing all that tension through laughter.
0: Yeah, it sets up that surprise, and the it's like having a great conversation when you're talking to someone. And you're like, "What are they going to say next?" And that to me is it's a great joke.
1: Yeah, if I, if I recall correctly, you're you're a Bill Hicks guy, right? You like Bill Hicks, right? Oh
0: yeah, I love Bill Hicks. Yeah,
1: would he, would he, he he was back in Houston when you were growing up, wasn't? he?
0: Yes, I have a half-sister that was a comedian, and I think she told me she did some shows with him. She was at the last stop in, in Houston. Uh, yeah. Um, God, didn't he just be, like, by Chili's? I mean, I'm trying. I'm, like, in my mind.
1: God, it's been over a decade. But that last stop has closed and reopened,
0: like, right. three times since yes. I've been doing
1: stand-up. <laughs>
0: yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, she was a the stand-up there. Um. Yeah, but yeah, Bill Hicks is—he's amazing. Yeah,
1: and and so like Hicks is—he he he does that thing where he like the anger and the passion in him really drives him and fuels him, and he gets the audience passionate and riled up about whatever he's talking about, and he's making them laugh the whole entire time because it's like every time he gets them really angry about whatever social injustice he's angry about, then he gets them to release it with a laugh, and I it's it's, it's, it's like cool when it's, all sorts of comedians can do it with with any different thing. Like I've seen. Um, I mean, I know you've got your history with Cosby and I've seen, I've seen these Cosby specials where he does something so magnificent with this playing on human emotions where he will get the audience to figure out his punchline before he even says it. And there's one special where he does that moment where he gets them to figure out what his punchline is and he just waits and he says, okay, did we all get it? And then he moves on to the next thing. And it's so beautiful when you can get that kind of like audience engagement with you because it's, it's a shared experience. And I guess one of the things I like about that is it's when you know that we all are like connected, we all can experience things. But we're all on a level playing field at the same time. And, and in that moment, nothing else matters except for that moment we've all just built together. Maybe that's why I like stand-up so much, is because it's like nothing else matters for that time that I'm that we're all in that room together and the laughs are happening.
0: When a comic really hits you, it, it's it's like time just stops. I haven't seen a comedian like that in a while.
1: There's a comedian named Russell Peters, and I used to watch him on TV, and he does a lot of crowd work. And I would watch him on TV and I, I think like man i just I don't get it like i don't and, and just and it's nothing against him i just don't think when people do crowd work on tv it works in the tv medium i, I just feel like um like you kind of have to be there in the room in the moment to appreciate it and then when i moved out to Los Angeles, i saw him at the time store one night and it was a very different experience i like He had the room so silent, doing crowd work, and you are hanging on his every word, and he's so comfortable on stage. I was like, oh, now I get it. Now I get why this guy is the biggest comedian in the world, because he builds those moments in the room, and you really feel like you're in his living room, and you're having the most intimate conversation with him, and you don't feel that way when you're watching him on TV as you do when you're in the room. And that's the same thing when Chappelle goes on stage, too tells does the same thing. If you just feel like you're having this really intimate conversation with him that nobody else is having. And yeah, it's that, that whole conversation in the room that we, and it's, and it's not just the comedian who built it. It's, it's, we all build it. We all in that room build it together.
0: For me, like I'm just learning. Sometimes I, there's no joke. It's just our, especially with Dave Chappelle, I feel like I'm learning something. Yes, it's funny, but it's like kind of rubbing two parts of my brain.
1: Yeah. And I feel like uh, Bill Hicks was like that. And I think Bill Burr is capable of doing that a lot. Uh, you know you know who I thought was really good at doing that? When we would go watch Russell Brand, yeah, I thought he was so good at and, and really showing us just that he would give us a, a history lesson and make us laugh at the same time and then give us a, a religious lesson or an existential lesson and make us laugh at the whole way. I thought he was. So brilliant when he would do things like that. Yeah, I remember when he invited us to go see that uh, test show he did for what ended up being his uh, his special messiah complex, and he didn't really give us a lot of information. He's just like, "Oh, just come. I'm working this thing out." I was blown away by that. That was, it, thing was so brilliant how he structured it because he started it talking about like his. He read about his own death in a tabloid magazine, and then he went through like, yeah, then he goes through Hitler and and Gandhi and all the other people and then ties it back into himself it's like I think I'm as great as these people because I read about my own death and it's like it, it was so brilliant the journey he took us on
0: mm-hmm. it's still being comedic I feel like it's more of a spoken word and more of a narrative than you know it's back to that whole thing like that you know Ronnie Dangerfield the boom boom joke boom boom joke boom boom joke
1: but then also I look at it as spectrum too you know there's there's, there's there's the two ends and then in the middle there's so many different variations on it but you know like back in the back in the vaudeville days it was very much set up punch set up punch and then yeah and then it grew into I, then it grew into sort of like after the lenny bruce era it kind of grew into like stories and social commentary political commentary all that kind of stuff and it's it's it's, it's a it's i'd say it's constantly Evolving art form, and some people look at Hannah Gadsby and that special she did um, Manette. They look at that as another evolution of the art form.
0: Um, yes,
1: and then set of punch will never go away. Like that'll always be the no. that'll always be the core. Everything, everything has to have a punchline some sort.
0: Right. Like I'm thinking, like what is what is Jim Carrey was just a funny guy and just never he never hung out with anyone in the beginning and. And he just went to the comedy store, did his set, and went home and, you know, meditated.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, they, the reason Jim Carrey got on In Living Color was because Damon Wayans went to Keen Ivory Wayans and said, Hey, there's this guy at the comedy store. You've got to watch him. You've got to check him out. He's so funny. And Jim Carrey could have, at the ta- at that time, Jim Carrey could not have been, uh, I'm just going to do my set and go home and not talk to anybody. because." It's just he was married to a waitress at the comic store at the time, so like his own
0: uh-huh. his
1: own wife was there. So no, he was a <laughs> okay. he was a social guy back then. But it, it, again, it worked in favor because Damon waynes was like, "Hey, you got to watch him. He's funny," and that's how he got on in Living Color. So if yeah, if Jim Carrey's wife was not working at the comic store and if he was antisocial, would he have gotten in Living Color? Hard to say. There was a story I heard about like if you're at the comic store and you were bombing, you would hear Damon Wayans howling in the back corner of the room because Damon Wayans, like loved watching people bomb.
0: I feel like you learn more from bombing than from when you hit it out of the park.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because when you bomb, you know how you, you're able to like look at it. And analyze and say, okay, well, what can I do differently next time I'm in that situation? And then you try the next thing at the next time you're in that situation. You remember, oh, this is what I said I was going to try this time. So you try that then. And if that works, you've mastered that little road bump for the next time you encounter it. So, you know, like the, the next time, you know, if you get heckled by somebody and they say a certain thing and you're thinking on the drive back, oh, I should have said that to that person. Next time somebody heckles you, if you can fit that in there you'll do it and if it works boom you've got a heckler shut down whenever somebody heckles you or or even like uh yeah you learn a lot from bombing because you it's like the revision mode it's like when you're when those guys are mm-hmm. making a prank phone call and it's not going their way they do a rewrite and try it try on the next call it's just, yeah
0: was it really tough in the beginning how long did it take you to get into the scene and and you felt like okay i have my footing here i have my group i'm i'm rocking
1: uh, it's, uh, I mean, I got into the comedy store fairly quickly. I say by pure accident, you know, I, I happened to get on the, it was really competitive at comedy sort of try and get up on the open mic list or it's probably worse now, but when I came out here 10 years ago, it was really competitive and, and it was like, uh, it was anarchy. They would put out a sign up list and, and everybody like vultures would go to sign up on the sign up list and people like, people actually learn how to write their names upside down. That's how chaotic it was. Um, And I happened to get up first one night, shortly after I first moved here. Uh, Town coordinator at the time happened to see me. And as I was walking off stage, he was walking out. We kind of crossed paths. And he said, nice job, keep coming back. And that's kind of like, it was pure accident. So I got in the comic store within like my first year or two in Los Angeles and started working there as like a, you know, a door guy. And that's, that's, that's what they do is they hire comedians as door guys. And it's supposed, supposed to be like a training ground. So I got a lot of formative training there. Um, but as far as like, you know, your, your group, um, this, the comedy scene in this town is so fickle sometimes that it really is hard to make friends because people are so hesitant to make friends with with people in the scene because you don't know how long somebody's going to last. Hmm. So, you know, like uh, a lot of the guys that I was paling around with when I first moved out here, I think only like, I think there was like about five or six of us. I think only two or three of us are left still doing stand up. Um, so there's like a sort of like, it's tough to kind of. Make friends in the comedy scene because nobody knows how long you're going to stick around. but everyone's so hesitant to like be friends to befriend you because you could be gone in three weeks or you could be gone in four years. And it's like there'll be times where there was like somebody who's in your crew disappears, stops doing stand up, and then like five years later just shows up out of nowhere, expecting to be friends with you again, and you're like, I, don't, I, I didn't talk to you in five years, man. Like, <laughs> Or, or, you know, there'll be a, you know, you'll, you'll quit. You'll still grind. You'll get like an appearance on America's Got Talent or, or, or something. And then that person will show up and be like, oh man, like I saw you and I realized I, I sh- I gotta, I gotta come back because I could be on America's Got Talent next then. And, and you're like, no, you quit for five years. I was out, while well, I was out grinding, you quit. It's not going to happen like that for you. But like, I I have, um, right now I have, uh, what I'd say is, a, I have like a very small sort of comedy inner circle of like, these are the people that I share disappointments with, I share good news with, I talk shit about other comedians with, we talk, I talk comedy gossip with, there's like three or four of those guys. I've known them all for like, you know, like six to 10 years. And uh, I, I, I'd say, you know, like, it, it's not a wide net, but it's a net that has, I've known for a while that it's still stuck around. So I'd say they're fairly reliable in terms of being like my
0: little comedy posse. Do you think it's more about talent or hard work or who, you know, how do you think this whole thing works? Cause I remember I was, I, you know, I've had Jeremy and I had Matt here and we were talking and I, and you know, I, I you know I, I watch things on Netflix or I'll watch, I'll watch a special and I'll and I'll I'll go and I, I'm it's not very good and I'm like how did this person get this special? I mean, you know, that's I'm one person with one opinion, but there's sometimes I I watch things and I'm like, H- who greenlighted that? Because, and you know, even my my girlfriend Lisa will be like, that's not funny. And you know, this and my you know, girlfriend Lisa, you know, she's not a comedian. She's just a a normal person who loves sitcoms and you know loves funny things, but you know, sometimes we'll sit down to watch something and we're just, and you know, maybe the trailer's pretty good of the stand-up, and then we'll you know, 20 minutes in, we're like turn it off, turn it off.
1: Uh, I think, uh, you know, some of it is, who do you know, some of it is uh, some of it is well, okay, let's say let's this, let's say this. At the end of the day, talent has to back up everything. So you can get every opportunity in the world, but if you have no talent to back it up, there's no way you're getting any. So somebody has to think you have some form of talent in order to even make it onto a Netflix special. Uh, You can't just say, oh, that so-and-so only got it because... For for like a Netflix special, you can't say so-and-so only got a Netflix special because they knew whomever. Because that's just simply not true because at the end of the day, like at Netflix, there's such a hierarchy there. I was watching, I think, like 60 Minutes or CBS Sunday Morning today. They were interviewing Ted Sarandos and he was saying he gets, you know, 100 pitches a day from every and every genre. And so you're telling me that, like, Ted Sarandos is just going to give somebody a, a movie or a special just because... He's hearing hundreds of pitches a day. There's no way he's just giving... it. Anything just to to somebody because he knows them. There's got to be something to back it up. And uh, so I, yeah, talent always has to back up everything at the end of the day. But, you know, like I think opportunities to get seen and job opportunities to come from who do you know. Uh, Like I spent the last two and a half years working with the comedian named DL Huey and through working with him that has opened up a lot of opportunities for me to get other work and to expand my own career. But at the same time, it's not just because I work with him that I get this other work. It's, you know, I have something that they think will serve them, whether it's, you know, whether it's writing or they like me as an opener or, you know, whether they think I'm a solid producer or something like I have some sort of talent to back up the work that they give me, you know, you know, you don't just Handed work because you know somebody.
0: But you would say, so I, I remember I listened to this Ari Ari Rashir Ari. I'm probably saying sure? his name wrong. Uh, yeah. And he talked about he has this uh, long podcast where he was talking about and he was talking about how how he got his career started. And he said the first two years it's all about meeting people and becoming friends with people. He's like you don't even have to even be funny. You just gotta like know people and you gotta be in the right you know groups, the right. And, and that's how you'll get opportunities more than, you know, if you're just the guy going to comedy and you just, and then after you're done with your set, you go home. Like you've got to build this, you know. No, okay, uh, so I think what
1: he was saying is, yes, absolutely. Because like, yeah, that is a big thing is like, you, yes, you absolutely need to be working on your set and your act and, and honing material. But then that when you're done with your last open mic of the day, the job's not done. You have to go socialize and be friendly and hang and get to know the people who work at the comedy clubs because yes, yeah, I think that's more what he meant because like, yeah, I don't go hang out at the comedy store now because I put, I put in my time there. So I don't have to go show my face and get to know people and, and everything. You know, I did all that. I did that 10 years ago when I first moved out here and so now. It's you know I work now because I did all that because I, I I worked on my act and worked on my material and then I you know met all those people that whatever chain of events led me to go do all the work that I do now so I don't have to I don't have to go to the comedy clubs now to do to put in that work of socializing and and uh, and sort of uh, uh, networking and all that because I've 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 built my relationships now.
0: Uh, well, you know, I think things are going to work out for you. I really believe in you, Jay. I think it's going to happen when you're not even thinking about it. I think it's, you're going to a bolt of all this great, these great things are going to happen. I re- and I, things have good things have been happening for you. It's just right now everybody's in a rut. Everyone is like, I don't know what next week looks like. Yeah. I mean, everybody's I, I, there's not one person I've talked to going, yeah, man, everything's great. I'm I'm so happy right now. It's the best <laughs> time in, to be alive. 2020, woohoo! You know. <laughs>
1: I hope we can get some semblance of normal back soon. That's just, uh, I miss, I miss life. I miss real life.
0: <laughs> I just want to say uh, thank you. And J- oh yeah, Jay. Um, if people want to get in touch with you or watch a video or learn more about you, what do they do? Where do they go? Where are your platforms?
1: Find me on Instagram. It's a uh, God hates Jay. Just the letter J. God hates Jay. Just the letter J. Uh, I am on Twitter. It's God H-J, spelled out J A Y, but I'm locked out of my Twitter account, so I don't really post it on there. So, uh, yeah, Instagram's really the best place to get me.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, um, thank you so much, Jay. And we'll definitely, I, I want to do a podcast where it's me, you, uh, Jeremy, and Matt. I think that would be, I think we should do that uh, soon, a roundtable when we can be closer to each other. Happy soon. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jay, and have a beautiful night. Thanks for being on the show.